You saw the title on the PowerPoint, Unto Us, Unto Me. Kind of a little giveaway of where I'm going probably this morning. Unto Us, Unto Me. A couple of nights ago when I was in my study, and this word was getting birthed in my heart, I went to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I didn't get very deep into Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when I, my eyes just began to well up with tears. You ever do that when you're reading God's Word? You just, it just begins to minister to you. Like I said, I didn't get very deep, and it just, my eyes began to well up with tears, and I stopped for a moment, and I meditated, and I looked at the Word on my screen, and I took a fresh run at it, and I got about the same distance in the Word, and my eyes welled up with tears, and uh, just it was ministering to me. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 opens up with these words. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And when I read those words, I couldn't help but say, God, what awesome love is that? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What amazing love that God has for you and me. And after about five minutes or so, I was able to get beyond that and finally read the whole scripture. It reads like this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Did you see how many names he had there? He had five of them. And we know always in the Hebrew, the number five is the number for grace. Listen, I'll tell you what. I thought, man, if, if any believer read this scripture and they couldn't see Jesus in it, they'd have to be blind, deaf, and dumb. I mean, that is Jesus to the max. If there's any scripture in the whole Old Testament that reveals Jesus, that's it, isn't it? I mean, everybody should get that. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Five majestic names for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I believe is a messianic announcement of a soon coming king. You notice you don't see anything in here about pacifiers. You don't see anything in here about baby rattles and receiving blankets. But what you hear him speak of is you hear him speak of a government. You hear him speak of a divinity. You hear him speak of a maturity. When they use names like counselor, that speaks of maturity. It's not talking about just a little baby. He had to come as a little baby, but he wouldn't stay in the manger and he wouldn't stay a little baby. He would grow up and he would fulfill his assignment. Thank God he did that, right? Because there was a time in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was saying, Daddy, Daddy, I really don't want to go to the cross. But Daddy, I know it's your will. Daddy, I really don't want to go, but I know it's my heart too. What blessed me the most about that scripture right there is a section that I've understood least over the years. And it's the section where it says, The government shall be upon his shoulder. <laughs> and I got to thinking, what do you mean the government shall be upon your shoulder? And so when I was reading this particular scripture, I always asked myself the question, will I find encoded beneath what I'm reading, will I find encoded there the, the, the purpose for that scripture? Will I find encoded in there the reason there for the announcement of this baby coming into the world, this soon coming king? And I certainly was not disappointed. I want to tell you that much right now. When I looked up this word government, 
It's the Hebrew word misrah, misrah. And I thought, okay, I'm going to look somewhere else in the Old Testament, and I'm going to find where it comes up so that I can understand its context, its applications, its point, and stuff like that. But you know what I found out about that, that particular word? It doesn't come up anywhere else in the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament is vast, but there's no place in the Old Testament that word is used again, other than in verse 6 and verse 7. So I thought, Lord, what do you mean the government shall be up on his shoulder? What are you trying to say here? I felt the Lord say to me, what is the opposite of a government? I'm going to tell you what the opposite of a government is. The opposite of a government is an anarchy. In an anarchic system, what you have, it literally means is everybody has to provide for themselves. There is no welfare. There is no food stamps. (laughs) There is no unemployment. There is no social security. There's no disability. Number two, you have to protect yourself. You have to protect yourself because there's no police department. There's no military. There's no justice system. That's the opposite. Aren't you glad you're in a government? Just walk out of the government one time because there's some places still in the world that live in anarchic type setups. They have no government. They have no rule. They have to provide. It is a dog-eat-dog world. It is literally survival of the fittest. That's the way it works. And if you remember a few months ago, I was preaching a series out of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd series. I preached several messages out of there. I'm going to get back in there one of these days. I thought, God, this is just absolutely diametrically against the heartbeat of Jesus. Because in Psalm chapter 23, in verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that word want, remember, we, we studied that one quite a bit. That is the word chaser, which literally means want or need or fail. It means to fail. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, what it's saying, in Christ there is divine provision. There's a government that provides for you. And we really need to grab a hold of that, that God is always providing for me. And there are times He will speak into your ears. He's not going to do your homework for you. You must do your homework. But I'm going to tell you something. He's going to bless your homework. Every place I've had to put a resume in, God didn't fill out the resume for me. He didn't fill out the application, but He gave me the hand to write with and the mind to write with. I'm going to tell you something. You've got to do your own homework, but I'm telling you, Jesus wants to provide for you. In verse 4 of Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That is saying in Christ, in God, there is divine protection. So it's just absolutely the opposite of an anarchy type system. I believe this government he's talking about, and he's talking about Jesus coming, he's going to introduce a government of grace. He's going to introduce a government of grace. You just watch and see in the scriptures. And under that covenant, the covenant that we are under, the covenant of grace, I want to tell you something. There's divine provision. There's divine protection. In John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus said these words, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There is a government of provision. And say it with me, unto us, unto me. Unto us and unto me. It's not just us, it's unto me as well. There's this government that says, I'm going to provide for you. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, the Bible says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my Savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. I love that. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. You see, in God, there's this divine protection. There's this government of protection. And we can say, unto us and unto me. The government really represents the kingdom. This always comes back to me. When Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, you would have thought the first words coming out of the 
out of the desert would, would have been something other than the word repent. I mean, I, he had spent 40 days with his daddy. I mean, not eating food and repent, I said before, in the Greek has two words associated with it, metanoia. It literally means, meta means to change, noia means your mind. In the English, it's still two words, re and pent. Re means to return, and pent means to the highest place. And that's why we use words like pentagon. It means the highest place of security. We use words like penthouse. It means the highest apartment. And Jesus said, listen, when he came out of the desert, he said, you guys have been under this system of law a long time, for thousands of years. But I'm coming today to tell you there's a new government. There's a new government that's being released. It's the government of grace. Under the Mosaic law, it was kind of like the... uh, an anarchy system. It was always about you providing, you pleasing. It was about you keeping the covenant with God. It's not that way today. Jesus is the covenant keeper. So he says in that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, he says, he says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And it was that word shoulder that began to open up the whole text of this scripture for me. I looked in Webster's 1828 dictionary and here's what it says. Figuratively it says, it speaks of a support or a sustaining power, or another way to say it, it's a provision and a protection. And I thought, wow, grace is the only message I have ever heard that supports me. Grace is the only message I've ever heard that sustains me. It gives me life. It has this sustaining power. And the Apostle Paul was going through a tough time. He was going through a rough time. And in 2 Corinthians, this is a a real famous passage, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. He says, therefore, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. People say, what was the thorn, Mark? It tells you right right after that. He said, a messenger of Satan. That was his thorn. It said, to torment me. Three times, he said, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What did he say? He said, my grace is sufficient. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. In Christ, there's a divine provision. There's a divine protection. Not only did he have a sufficient grace working and a sustaining grace, but I'm going to tell you something. He had a triumphant grace that was working in his heart and his life. And that's the way. We just can't see ourselves that we're just getting by. That's not what the word triumphant means. Triumphant means you are more than a conqueror. You stand with that shoulder squared. You are more than a conqueror. You have no fear of what the enemy can do to you. And so when I, I looked at this word shoulder, I said, I felt the Holy Spirit say, go ahead and take a look and see where that comes up in the Bible for the first time. I love the law of first mention because it just opens up your understanding of this. The word shoulder is the Hebrew word shechem, kind of a cool sounding word, shechem. That's what the Hebrew word is. And in Genesis chapter 9 is where it's used for the very first time. Now before I get into those scriptures, I want you to see what was happening just before these scriptures were written. God had hung a rainbow in the sky. Noah had came through the flood. All the earth had been destroyed. Every person had been destroyed. And God said, hey, I'm going to hang a rainbow in the sky, and this is going to be my covenant of promise. Every time you see that, you'll realize I will never destroy the earth by flood again. He hung a rainbow in the sky. And then in chapter 9 verse 18, Here's what it says. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, that means he was a farmer. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk 
and lay uncovered inside his tent. Now, I don't think Noah planned on getting drunk because when I looked in the Bible, there was nobody that had gotten drunk according to the Word of God up until that point. It's not that they didn't, maybe they did, but nobody had been recorded drinking any wine or getting drunk. So I believe when Noah planted the, the vineyard, he probably planned on just drinking grape juice and he found out, <laughs> I guess that was a little toddy for the body. I don't know what happened here, but I wasn't planning on that. So, I mean, I believe he was totally innocent. He just drank the wine and he got drunk, the Bible says. And he laid uncovered in his tent. Now watch what happens. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Ham came in. Now, I was trying to picture this. You know, maybe they all slept in the same tent. Maybe it was just a big tent, you know. Maybe Ham was ready to take a little afternoon nap. I don't know why he went in there. Maybe he hadn't seen Daddy for a little while and thought, man, I better go check on Daddy. And he walked into the tent and he found his father on the floor of the tent naked. Well, that would be a little strange, I guess. Do weird things ever pop in your mind once in a while? <laughs> I, I couldn't help but think about this, you know, because this is just such a weird story. That I thought, man, if, if my wife ever came home and walked into the bedroom and found me on the floor naked with a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 in my hand, you know, all passed out. Can, now, can you imagine? That's a weird enough scene all by itself. But now imagine that she goes out into the other room and she picks up her phone and... And she... Hey, Sarah? Guess the way I found your daddy today. And she told Sarah about this. Sarah would... I know Sarah well enough. She'd go, ooh, too much information. I know that's what she would do. And so when I thought about this, you know what my wife would probably do? She would do one of two things. Either she would call 911 or she would just start rebuking devils and demons and praying like a crazy woman in the house. She's not going to call somebody else. So what Ham does, he's a father of Cain. He saw his father naked and told his two brothers. Daddy was in the tent naked. He's unresponsive. I tried to wake him up, but he's not moving. It's a weird thing. And here's what Shem and Japheth, this had to be the Holy Spirit, man. They put a garment on their shoulders like this. And the Bible says they walked into the tent backwards. And they just began to cover daddy. And they kept their faces this way. I want you to think and meditate on that just for a moment. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. That is the first place it comes up in the Bible. That's that word Shechem. Now remember, the law of first mention says the first time something's mentioned, it means something. It really means something. It's trying to point us to something, and it's always trying to point us to Christ. They walked in backward, and they covered their father's naked body. Exactly the same way that God covered Adam and Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis when they sinned. He covered them with a garment. The first revelation and the first type and shadow that I saw of this Hebrew word Shechem is this. Love always covers. I want you to remember that. Love always covers. And that Shem and Japheth were full of love for their daddy, and they walked in, they said, listen, this is not an image I want in my mind. This is not an image I want in my mind. When my daddy died and had laid in the bed for five days uh, after he died, the undertaker told us, you do not want to see what your daddy looks like. You do not want that image in your mind. And the boys were thinking, I don't want to see. I heard what you said. Daddy's naked in the tent. Well, we don't want that. Love always covers. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, Above all, 
love each other deeply. It says love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see. It's not that they could not. They refused to see their father naked. So when Noah awoke from his wine, he pronounces this awesome blessing over Shem and Japheth, but on Ham and Canaan, the curse fall. And I thought when I read this originally, I thought, Lord, did I miss something? I mean, Ham seemed pretty innocent. He, walked, he just happened to walk into the tent. He was the first one that found Daddy. You know, why was the big deal? He went out and told his brothers. I mean, I think I would have done the same thing. I would have went out and said, hey, bro, you know what? Daddy's in the tent. Daddy's having a bad day. Daddy's on the floor of the tent. No clothes on. I've never seen Daddy this way. I mean, what's the big deal about telling your brothers? I'm going to tell you what the big deal is about it. Because that word told, when the Bible says he went out and told his brothers, that word told in the Hebrew is nagad. It literally means to expose to mock, to ridicule. So it has this disdain to it. It says he went out there and it may have been something like, yeah, some man of God rescues us, kills the whole earth, kills all my buddies, all my friends, and now he is laying on the floor naked. It was this attitude that he had when he went out there and he told him, you would never pick that up in the English word, but underneath the surface of that, I'm going to tell you, that was the disdain that was going on. That was the exposure, the mockery that was going on. Another way to say this is, he went out of his way to make his daddy look bad. He went out of his way to make his daddy look bad. Now what is the problem with that? I'm going to show you what the problem with that is. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. This is Moses. He's went in. He's got all the Israelites out of Egypt. They're in the Exodus right now. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. And here was his instruction. He said, Strike the rock. Strike the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there's the narrative in the Old Testament. This was shortly after they had been released into the desert. This happened. When we move over into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we begin to see how the New Testament reads it. It says this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the same cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They had no idea the symbolism of that rock when Moses was to strike the rock. What it would symbolize is one day the shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, would be smitten and afflicted. Now move to the end of the 40-year journey in Numbers. We get through Exodus, we get through Leviticus, and now we're toward the end of Numbers, and we find in chapter 20 these words. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of sin, and they stayed at Kadesh. 
There Miriam died and was buried. That was Moses' and Aaron's sister. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness? Does this sound like a broken record? It, it does, doesn't it? Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of the meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses something very specific. He says, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Now watch what he says. He says, speak to that rock. Speak to that rock. You see, we're under a government, and this is the thing that I'm coming to realize more and more, even under grace. We are under a government where we can speak to rocks. The Bible says that we are to speak to mountains. Don't ever forget the greatest weapon you've got is your voice. The greatest weapon is faith behind that voice. You can speak to the rock. I think sometimes we do too much speaking to one another when we ought to be speaking to the rock. We ought to be speaking to Jesus Christ. He says, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in the front of the rock, and Moses said to them, I understand sometimes you get complicated directions, complicated instructions, right? But it really wasn't that complicated, was it? What did God say to Moses and Aaron? He said, speak to the rock. So you can only imagine when they left the tent of meeting and they were on their way back to the Israelites, they're like, did you hear what God said? He said that we are to speak to the rock. I did hear him say that, Moses. What are you going to say to the rock? I'm really not sure. I guess I'll just say, water, come forth. I don't know. He told us to speak to the rock, didn't he? Remember when I struck it that one time 40 years ago and the water came out? Yeah, that was pretty cool. I'm going to tell you something. You can't always live on things that you used to do. God has a fresh revelation for you every single moment. It's a moment-by-moment -moment journey. And so he said, speak to the rock. He didn't even say speak to the people. He said, speak to the rock. And the first words out of his mouth were, after he gathered all these hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, up probably on a high rock, he said... He says, listen, you rebels. And that word rebels, man, it means bitter, unpleasant, disobedient rebels. What? Is that what God told him to do? Listen, this man right here, Steve Maya, my assistant pastor, this is a man's man right here. This guy can bench press over 300 pounds. That's a lot of weight. If you were just a step next door to Menards, that's a man's store, isn't it? That's a, that's a man's store. Menards, right? Menards. It's a man's store, right? So you got construction guys and auto mechanics. I mean, you've got the toughest guys in the world going in. This is Menards. If you stood out in front of that door and took the next 100 men in, coming in, and you looked at each one in their face with disdain and said, listen, you rebel, I guarantee you'd have a fight on your hand. Listen, if we just speak words of grace, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that grace that it might edify the hearers minister grace everywhere we go. He says, listen, you rebels. I bet you could have heard a pin drop <laughs> when he said that. And then he says, must we bring you water out of this rock? They're thirsty. Yes. The answer is yes. God told you yes. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. 
Not what God told him to do. God told him to speak to the rock. Moses not only struck the rock once, but twice. You know why he did that? Because he was angry. He had something in his crawl. I mean, they were on his last nerve. He struck the rock twice. But you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of self-righteousness, that I'll bring it out with my own strength. I'll bring it out with my own might. I did it before. I'll do it again. God, I just know. I'll bring that water gushing out of that rock. And you know what? I want to show you something. The goodness of God. You think God would have said, nope, you didn't do that right, Moses. You, you didn't listen to me. I'm withholding water. But you know what the Bible says? Water gushed out and the community drank and so did their livestock. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, come here, I need to talk to you guys. Come here, Moses, come here, Aaron. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community of people into the promised land. And you know the story. He did not get to bring them in, did he? I heard Joseph Prince say this the other day. He said, Moses, you misrepresented me. You misrepresented me. Let me get something straight with you, buddy. These are my people. I know you think they're yours because you've had them for 40 years, but these are my people. You misrepresented me. You made me look harsh. You made me look mean. I'm not like that. I'm a good God. I'm a great God. And there should be nothing inside of us that we look at God and say, he's mean. No, he's always, always good. He's good unto us. He's good unto me. So when Ham told his brothers that their daddy was drunk, naked and passed out on the tent floor, you know what he did? He totally misrepresented who his daddy really was. That's not who his daddy really was. He totally misrepresented who his daddy really was. Noah's name means rest. Noah's name means rest. And you know what? His rest just got disturbed, didn't it? See, that's what the mixture gospel does. When you start mixing in law and, you, and mixing it in with grace, it disturbs the believer's rest. Because now it's all about performance. It's about what we do. You can't get under that covenant. We're not under that covenant anymore. And so it disturbs our rest. And Jesus' message again in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 29, and 30, what did he say? Come unto me. Unto me. There's the unto me part. Unto us. Unto me. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you what Noah's got. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. Your identity is no longer found in what people think about you and what people say about you. Let it be said of you like it was said of Noah, and Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. By striking the rock, instead of speaking to it as he was instructed, Moses totally conveyed the wrong message of God. Symbolically, Moses was essentially saying that the, the first striking was insufficient when we know that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. That was a type of Christ being stricken. My Bible tells me in, in Hebrews chapter 10 that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. So as I read Noah's narrative, and you say, what's Noah's narrative got to do with it? You know what? When it says the government shall be upon his shoulders, that word Shechem right there, this is where it first comes up in that story. So what God is always trying to do in the Bible, he's trying to point us back to something so that we can see something. Here's what I heard the Lord say. The word Shechem in Noah's narrative there reminds us that we are covered with his love. What his brothers did for their daddy reminds us that we are always covered by his love. And he's taken away our sin. He's taken away our shame. He's taken away our reproach. He's taken away your nakedness. He's taken away our drunkenness. He's taken it away. 
and He has placed upon us, the Bible says in Isaiah, the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness. So you know what He's done essentially? He has turned His back on our stuff. Even God says, you know what? I know you got stuff. I know you got stuff, but you know what? I've turned my back on your stuff. Because when I walked in, I found you that way originally. I walked in and I covered you with a garment of praise. I covered you with a garment of salvation. I covered you with a robe of righteousness. I don't see your stuff anymore. That's an amazing thought that God, God doesn't see all of our stuff, even the new stuff. He said, listen, I've got my eyes set the other way. I don't see stuff. So when I saw that, I thought, Lord, that's good enough all by itself. But, he, but I heard the Lord say, would you like to see that where it comes up the second time? Yes, I'd like to see where it comes up the second time. In Genesis chapter 16, it reads like this. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but, it says, she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Is that a good idea? <laughs> Bible says Abraham agreed. <laughs> okay, Abraham. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, Sarai. In other words, she had this chip on her shoulder, like, I'm better than you suddenly. You know, she's, she's fallen in love with Abraham. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. What? What? It wasn't Abraham's idea. It was Sarah's idea. She says, you're responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her, and the angel of the Lord found Hagar in the desert, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. <laughs> this is like kindergarten stuff, isn't it? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now we know in this picture here that Hagar is a picture of law. It's a picture of doing things in the natural. And naturally, she had that baby. Sarah is a picture of grace. She is a picture of grace because she had a supernatural encounter with God. There was no way that woman could have gotten pregnant at the age she became pregnant at, which was 90 years of age. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. <laughs> and at that very time, God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. He was mocking. He was making fun. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Abraham was partial to Ishmael, believe it or not. That was his firstborn son. He was partial to Ishmael. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. That's an amazing thought right there because Sarah again represents grace. And, and the message for you and I is always listen to what grace tells you. Always listen to the, what the message of grace is saying to you. 
Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders. What is that word? That is that Hebrew word, Shechem. That's the second time it comes up in Scripture. He set the food and a skin of water on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Now, this is in Genesis. Let's jump way over into the New Testament now and see what it says about this narrative. Galatians chapter 4, begin at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. One by the woman of, of law, one by the woman of grace. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh or through the natural means. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. I'm telling you, you better off just to wait on God. If God has made you a promise, wait on God. Let God bring that promise to come to pass. Don't try to help him unless he asks you to help him. These things are, are being taken figuratively. Now watch what it says. The women, these two women, represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. What do we know about Mount Sinai? It's where Moses received the law. He said one of these covenants represents Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. At that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. Now watch what it says. It is the same now. The Apostle Paul was saying, listen, there is nothing new. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to find as you are happy about your message of grace and what the message of grace is doing for you. It's ironing out all your wrinkles. It's got rid of all your spots. It's giving you a new mindset. But you know what you're going to find out? It's the same now. The people of the law will persecute you. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. In Noah's narrative, that word Shechem came up for the first time. What does it remind us of? It reminds us that God has continually covered us. He doesn't see our stuff. He doesn't see our shame, our nakedness, our reproach, our sin. He doesn't see it. In Hagar and Sarah's narrative, it reminds us that we have been freed from the cohabitation of a law performance-based relationship. Law always has to submit to grace. When I read this, I said, wait a minute, Sarah got kind of snappy with, with Hagar. The Bible says she mistreated her. And I thought, Lord, that doesn't sound like grace. But you know what that, all that means, that word mistreated? It means to browbeat. And I don't know exactly what that looked like, but that's all it means. It's not like she was whipping on her when Abraham left the tent. It's just browbeating her and stuff like that. But I'm going to tell you something. We can do that to the law because the law has no effect on us. It's not that we can go out and mistreat people. It was a symbolism that, listen, we can look down on the law. We can disdain it because it no longer has an effect on our life. Yes, it's perfect. Yes, it's holy. Yes, it brings people to Christ. But once it's brought us to Christ, it has no more hold on us. It can do nothing for us. It's an amazing thought. So after I read that, I thought, Lord, that's really cool. Hidden underneath, the government shall be on his shoulders. All my stuff has been covered. Sarah is my mother. The Bible says Sarah is the mother of grace. Hagar is the mother of the law. I choose to be on the side with Sarah. Aren't you glad about that? <laughs> Amen. 
I thought the Holy Spirit said to me, do you want to see where it comes up a third time? I'm like, there's another time? The very next time. I'm, I'm not just picking these things out of random, like, okay, here's where it comes up once, here's where it comes up again here, way over here. No, all in succession. The very next time it comes up is in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham was very old now, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had, put your hand under my thigh. That's how they did an oath back then. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward the evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be to me that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, the Bible says, Rebecca. Rebecca. Her name literally means fettered by beauty. In other words, chained by beauty. Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. That is the word Shechem. That is the third time it comes up. Again, Noah's narrative, what does it remind us of? We are covered. Our sin, our shame, our reproach has been taken away. You don't have it anymore. Quit bringing it up. It doesn't belong to you. Give it to Hagar. Hagar knows what to do with it. It doesn't belong to you. The next narrative is Hagar and Sarah. What does it remind us? We're no longer living under the law. How many wives did Abraham have? I know of at least three. Abraham was Isaac's dad. Abraham had many wives. How many wives did Isaac's sons have? Esau and Jacob. They had multiple wives. Jacob had Leah and Rachel. His son Esau had two or three wives as well or more. But then I heard the Holy Spirit say, how many wives did Isaac have? As far as I can remember, it was just Rebecca. You see, Isaac is a type of Christ. Christ has one wife. One wife. And see, that is the beauty of that narrative is that he came to marry us. He came that we could be his bride, that we could live with him and love just him, that there wouldn't be any feuding in the family with a Hagar and a Sarah situation. One wife. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the very next scripture, it says, of the increase of his government and peace. He says his government and peace. Remember, the government really is a government of grace. Last night, the Lord took me to every one of Paul's letters, starting in Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Every single one of his letters begin with grace and peace unto you. Every one of them. I thought maybe there was one that he didn't say. He added mercy in a couple of them, but he's always saying grace 
and peace unto you. And so in this narrative, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, he says, of the increase of his government and peace. Literally it's saying, in the increase of his grace and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David. What is David? David's name means beloved. The beloved. There will be no end to this grace. There will be no end to this wonderful peace. There are three things that were on Jesus' shoulders. The government was the first one. It says that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The government was upon his shoulders. The only other things I saw on his shoulders were I saw sheep. When the Bible says a shepherd, when he has a hundred sheep and he loses one, will he not leave the 99 and go out and he will search for that sheep until he finds that sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he will put that sheep on his shoulder, rejoicing and going back and throwing an awesome party. You see the government on his shoulder, you see the sheep on his shoulder, and you see the cross. The cross on his shoulder. You see the beauty in that? Grace is going to flow from him. The sheep is going to be on his shoulder where all the grace is at. It's the government of grace right here, and the sheep is right there with him. And he said, listen, I'm going to the cross, and I'm taking you to the cross with me. You're going to die with me. You're going to die with me on the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a beauty found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And then I jumped over into the New Testament, which is where earlier in the week I began, but God said, nope. After about two or three days, he said, nope, you're not really preaching about that. You're going over in Isaiah. But I saw a couple of neat things in the narrative it found in Luke chapter 1. That is the most beautiful Christmas story you've ever seen. And I saw prior to Christ's announcement, prior to Mary being informed by Gabriel, the angel, that she was going to be with child, he first visited a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah, when he was in the temple doing his priestly duty, all of a sudden one day the angel shows up and he got spooked a little bit. And the angel began to speak to him and said, listen, he told him that Elizabeth was going to get pregnant. But as I began to look at that story right there, I said, it reads it just like this, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John. In that order, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John. So I looked up their Greek names. They, they got some really cool sounding names. Zechariah in Greek is pronounced Zaharias. That's his name in the Greek, Zaharias. Elizabeth is Ella Sabet. Ella Sabet. And John's name is Eoannes. That's how you say John in Greek, Eoannes. So when you start putting all these together, you have Zaharias, Elisabet, Eoannes. Then they have kind of like a cool sound to it. Zaharias, Elisabet, Eoannes. And it says it just in that order. It announces Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. More so than just pronouncing their names, what do their names mean? What? Because God is always trying to reveal something to us. The name Zechariah. Zaharias literally means the Lord has remembered. The Lord has remembered. Elizabeth, Elisabeth, her name means oath or promise. John, Eoannes, his name means grace. And so when you take Zaharias, Elisabeth, Eoannes, it literally means the Lord has remembered his promise of grace. And it's time for that to show up on the scene. Just a second, Zechariah, just a minute, Zaharias. He's coming. Mm, my, 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 I just feel the love of the Lord right now, I do. The Lord has remembered his oath 
of grace. When he hung the rainbow in the sky. You know, the first time grace is mentioned in the Bible is with Noah. The first, very first time it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first mention of it. And it was right in the, that narrative of Noah where he hangs the covenant of promise. The Lord has remembered his promise of grace and it's time to release it. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Why was John the Baptist in front of Jesus? Because John the Baptist was going to introduce Jesus. John the Baptist was going to baptize him and bring him up. And the Holy Spirit was going to descend on him like a dove. And he's going to hear those most awesome words come out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'm going to tell you something this morning. That's the way God says about you. He said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You say, what about on my worst day, Mark? What about when I've done wrong? I've told you before, he's covered your wrong. He's covered your nakedness. He's covered your shame. He's taken you and removed you out of the Hagar law. And he's married you to Christ. You are one wife under Christ. Grace, John, introduced grace. Or as we say in the scripture, grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace. Amen? In Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her, and he said, Hail, thou art highly favored. There's grace. Thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor or grace. Thou hast found grace with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give him unto the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom. What kingdom is that? It's the kingdom of grace. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. It's saying the exact same thing that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 just said a minute ago. It said there shall be no end to that kingdom. That's the kingdom of grace. And then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. I want you to remember that. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Is anything impossible with God? Nothing is impossible with God. I don't care how big your situation, it doesn't matter how big, how desperate, how trying, uh, how annoying your situation is. Nothing is impossible with God. And we not only have to believe that, we need to confess it. We need to speak it out of our mouth. Let it rest upon our shoulders of grace. Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And here's what she said. Be it unto me according to thy word. 
Let me tell you something as I'm closing. About six years ago, the Lord gave my wife and my daughter Sarah the same scripture for babies. They're coming up on being married, what, 14 years? 15? And they tried to have babies shortly after that, maybe about a year into that. It wasn't happening. And year after year, we, we had some, I don't know if you don't remember them or not, we had some all-night prayer meetings at the former church we were at. We did, we stood on the scriptures and we just believed God, nothing is impossible with God. They tried all the kind of things that they should try in the natural to make this happen. But it was, this was going to be a supernatural work of God. It wasn't going to come naturally, it was going to come supernaturally. And so the scripture the Lord gave Sarah and gave my wife at the same time about five and a half years ago was Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now what do you do when you get a scripture like that? Unto us a child is born? Unto us a son is given? It sounds to me like a couple different kids here. <laughs> Unto us a child is born. Unto us, I don't think you guys could quite figure that out. I remember my wife wrote that out, had it sticking on our refrigerator. Every time you went in the fridge, you saw Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And they stood on that promise. They had been fostering, foster children, you know, one after the other with heartbreak. It was heartbreak hotel at their house so often, you know, coming and going. It was something else to behold. One day I was serving at the Life Center, a place, a mission field for me in, in downtown Rockford. There was a woman in the hallway. I could see she was in distress. And I just said to her, has anybody prayed for you? No, nobody's prayed for me. And I began to say, well, then I'll, I'll pray for you. And then I told her the story when we were done praying. You know, I felt that Elton John song pop in my head this morning from the 80s. Come on, I wasn't always saved. That Nikita song this morning, it just kind of popped in my, in my mind. It was like, oh, my sister, do you know? Do you know? This is basically what I said to her, too. Oh, my sister, do you know? Do you know he loves you so? You could roll around the globe and never find a more loving God to know. Oh, I saw you standing there, and I asked you, did you need some prayer? And when you said yes and laid my hands on you, it released the miracle. When I prayed for her and I said, listen, I want, to, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you about the two finest people you'll ever meet in your life. It's my daughter and my son-in-law. I don't know if anybody, and I don't say that just because they belong to us. I said, there are no finer people in this world. She told me, she said, I've kind of tentatively made an arrangement to give the baby to a, a, a pastor, a, a woman in that area. And I said, I totally understand. You do what God tells you to do. I said, but here, here is my name. Here's my phone number. And if you change your mind, you call me. Three days. It was Tuesday of the following week. I received a phone call. It was on my answer machine when I came home. And it basically said, I was praying. And I heard the Lord say to me, I am to give this baby to your daughter and your son-in-law. I said, glory to God. Hallelujah. But there were so many disappointments in the past. There were people that had promised them babies and then changed their mind when the baby was born. I didn't want to break her heart again. And her mama said, you call her, you call her right now, you call her and tell her. I called Sarah, I know her. Sarah, you remember that. I called you, you were sitting in a restaurant when I gave you that news. And she began to fall apart in there. You know what? It was two weeks later, it was 16 days later, 15 or 16 days later, that that little baby was born. 
Sarah was in the delivery room when the baby was born. Sarah got to hold the baby right out of the womb. She got to hold that baby. Unto us, a child is born. That was the first half of that. Unto us. She had already determined before the baby was born, I'm not going to have any attachment. This baby is yours. I'm having this baby for you. Unto us, a child is born. I know in this narrative they're talking about Christ, but how does it apply to you? Unto us a child is born. But what about the second part of that? Unto us a son is given. She had already had a little boy named Keith for about three or four years. He was like a little ping pong match. He would be there one day, back to the family the next day. He was a foster child. Back to her. You know, it was this thing going on. And it was really touch and go. There was this major tug of war. Until one day, finally, the state just stepped in and said, It's time. It's time for us to give you a son. It fulfilled that scripture to the max. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son. It even specifically a son is given. Yes, he came from God, but he came through our government. He came from the heavenly government and he came through our government. Aren't you glad for our government at times? Unto us a child is born. I want to tell you what Christmas looks like for me. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Thereby I can say his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Unto us, unto me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Father, that you are such a covenant keeper. We thank you, Father, that you have covered us with your blood. And what Jesus did was sufficient. He does not need to be stricken again. He sits at the right hand of Almighty God. With him and from him are pleasures evermore being released moment by moment every day in our lives. Father, we thank you that we've been covered. We thank you that the slave woman has been sent away into the desert. She will never trouble us again. And Father, we thank you that we can boldly declare Jesus has one wife. He has one wife. And I am. These people are that one wife. Father, we thank you as we celebrate Christmas. I just speak... Christmas greetings and Christmas love over all these wonderful people, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we go and we interact with family over these next few days, we can take a message of hope, a message of grace, a government of grace. It's resting upon our shoulders too because you said in your word, as he is, so are you in this world. Father, we bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.